Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining me on today's show, where we are talking about mental immunity for the passionately ignorant and willfully disinformed. My first guest is Dr. Andy Norman. Andy Norman is the award-winning author of Mental Immunity, Infectious Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think. Andy Norman has appeared in Scientific American, Psychology Today, Psychiatric Times, Skeptic, Free Inquiry, and The Humanist. Andy has also appeared on The Joe Rogan Experience, NPR, and the BBC's Naked Scientist. His research illuminates the evolutionary origins of human reasoning, the norms that make dialogue fruitful, and the workings of the mind's immune system. He champions the emerging science of mental immunity as the antidote to disinformation, propaganda, hate, and division. Andy is also the founder of the Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative, also known as Circe, like the Greek goddess, which is a global think tank leading the effort to inoculate humanity against cognitive contagion. Andy, welcome back. I am so excited that you're here, and I can't believe it's been a year <laughs> since we last hung out. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you, Lisa. It's a pleasure to be here, and really nice to talk to you again. Uh, uh, that year went very, very fast. In the but, blink uh, of an eye. Yeah. It's exciting and uh, disturbing times. It's exciting and disturbing. And I think back to our conversation a year ago, and in many ways, some things have changed, but in many mm. ways, in the areas that we're going to jump into, they haven't changed all that much, sadly. Yeah, there's still a lot lot wrong with our world. and But uh, I think there are real signs for optimism, too. There, We have new tools coming online to help us address some of the worst ones, I think. So... I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm going to second that. Let's talk about the reception of your book, Mental Immunity, Infectious mm -hmm. Ideas, Mind Parasites, and the Search for a Better Way to Think, mm -hmm. because this is a really cool book. <laughs> Thank you. And appreciate I appreciate it. And received really well. I've been very gratified by the response, not just from folks who are trying, bewildered by our mis- and disinformation problem, but also by scholars who are working in this space and who are rallying together now to create a new paradigm for addressing these problems. So I think we're all aware that um, you know, propaganda, conspiracy thinking, simply malicious, manipulative messaging, all of these things are out there corrupting the way people think about things. And we all need to understand our vulnerability and come together to protect each ourselves and each other from uh, what I increasingly think of as, as mind bugs, information bugs, things that can spread between minds and infect and derange them. 
in your experience, in your research, do you feel that we are all corruptible to a certain degree, that we are mm-hmm. all vulnerable, even, even the most learned and self-possessed human being? <laughs> Absolutely. I think all of the all the work on cognitive biases yeah. uh, suggests that you know intelligence is no no guarantee that you don't have a lot of bad ideas um, <laughs> in in your head and yeah i mean there's there's far more to wisdom than just being clever than just being smart right you have to use your smarts and your intelligence in the right way and and increasingly we're coming to understand that you need to run your own mind's idea testing system in a way that mimics how the body's immune system works so in a famous uh, experiment uh, performed over a century ago, a guy named Ilya Mechnikov stabbed a starfish larva, an innocent starfish larva, with a citrus thorn. And then he stuck it under a microscope and watched how white blood cells swarmed to the scene of the injury to um, try to consume the, the tip of the thorn and protect the, the larva. Um, and so he was the mm. first person ever to witness the body's immune system in action. And, and he conjectured that the body's immune system creates antibodies and sends them to where they're needed. He turned out to be right. And now we're discovering that the mind does something similar. When, when confronted with bad information, either and by bad I mean either harmful or false or in some other way problematic, um, a, well, a healthy mind will generate doubts. And those doubts will swarm to the scene of the new information and reduce its chances of taking root in the mind. Yes, I get it. So doubts are, in fact, the antibodies of the mind. And doubt ties to critical thinking. Mm-hmm. And, and here's where, so yes, this is all about critical thinking, but it's about a new way to understand and enhance critical thinking. Because... So I'm an I'm a academic who's been teaching critical thinking for about a quarter of a century. And for a long time, scholars thought that if we just teach people to doubt more, to just be more critical, then our minds would be become re, uh, less prone to, to mistaken beliefs. The problem with that story is that it's far too simple. Um, just as the body's immune system can generate too many can it, so the body's immune system can overreact to a perceived threat and attack even the body's own tissues. That's called autoimmunity. Uh-huh. Well, it turns out the mind can overreact to information it perceives as threatening and actually attack true and beneficial information. So if you think that the, the global media conspiracy is is hoodwinking you and everybody else – the problem is you've bought into a very indiscriminate form of doubt. It's a kind of doubt that's so sweeping that it's attacking even reliable sources of information. So we need to we need to update our understanding of how to to build critical thinking, to build mental immunity. In fact, I think the mental immunity way of framing it is superior to the critical thinking way of framing it because it suggests that we need to balance doubt and credulity in the right way. Well, the critical thinking component ties to executive functioning, right? When we're, mm-hmm. when we're having that hyper response, like, oh, this is a threat, 
We are disconnected from the prefrontal cortex responding, you know, in a primitive way. The amygdala is activated. We're in fight or flight. Um, Muscles are firing to get away from Mm -hmm. the perceived crisis. So it's really kind of a mental resilience process. Exactly. And and what some of the culture warriors have discovered in recent years is that you can actually manipulate the mind's immune system to make people cynical. And and uh, you can hijack people's minds by making them fear. Yeah. So so the, the amygdala is the part of the brain that's supposed to uh, examine incoming information and determine if there's an immediate threat. And if there is an immediate threat, it kind of shuts down the flow of blood to the forebrain, the to, to the neocortex where higher order thinking happens. The dashboard, the, da- <laughs> the modern the, the, mind. <laughs> right. And what was your term for executive function, right? Yes. That all takes place in the forebrain. Um, and, and it re- diverts the energy to the, to the muscles and to the fight or flight reflex. Yeah. But, you, but you can't think in a judicious and uh, fair-minded way when you're in that mode. And it's interesting when we talk about that negative contagion, if you look to the people who are most vulnerable or most impressionable to that kind of hijacking, Mm -hmm. it would be elderly people? Yeah, I think think there's some evidence of that. That's right. Um, So think about it this way, right? Nobody is born an ideologue, but many of us die with very rigid ways of thinking. So as we age, our thinking tends to grow more rigid, or, or at least unless, unless very specific efforts are made to prevent it. Or rooted. <laughs> we can be kind or, about or it. <laughs> I, I like the biological metaphor <laughs> rooted. a lot here. Rooted makes a lot of sense to me. So yeah, it, it's hard to, to age and not kind of get very attached to the ideas that have, have given you comfort in the past. And marginalized groups, too, was the other thing that comes to mind. If you're constantly feeling as though you're on the outside or living in fear or looking over your shoulder, you become vulnerable as well. Well, and to and to build on that, I've recently been talking to some scholars who think a lot about the human need to feel significant, the need to, to matter. Yeah. Apparently, when a particular demographic group feels as though they've lost significance, so the thinking right now is that white Christian men in particular I was just thinking that. <laughs> are, are feeling as though their significance is, is being drained away. And that that feeling is so powerful that it can make people highly vulnerable to false narratives that give them a sense of significance. So the, the narrative that we can take America back, put America first, that we can uh, defeat the liberal a monster, you know, that these are the simplistic, you know, that, that uh, Satan worshiping pedophiles run our nation. These, these are the kind of ridiculous. Out of pizza shops. Out of pizza shops. Yes. You got it. <laughs> um, these, these stories, which would never even get serious consideration in normal times, do get taken seriously by tens of millions of people because they, I assume because they provide kind of a false sense of significance. You know, the other day I was having, well, you don't know, but I'm going to tell you. The other day I was having a conversation with (laughs) my partner. We were talking about jihad and extreme groups, extremists. Mm -hmm. And 
the sort of the the idea of the Taliban as you know the thought police suppressing women, keep them covered um, to manage your own fear. You know that the men manage their own fear of the power of the women by trying to suppress them, and it yeah. is no different than what is going on in this country where there is a holy war of sorts mm-hmm. against women's rights, women's reproductive rights. Reproductive rights, absolutely. And I, people don't see it. To me, the parallels could not be more stark. Yeah. It's scary. I, I think one way to understand these really worrisome trends is as a kind of reaction to a more open information world. So we, we, we've created this wild west of information on the internet. and And the fact that heretical ideas are flowing to places that are really feel threatened by by that information is causing people to react emotionally and defensively um and you know again what what the science of mental immunity suggests is that we can't think well and we certainly can't dialogue well when we feel defensive yeah activated like if if our if our immune system, if our, we're biologically activated as well, mm. right? You cannot think well. Um, if the biological immune system is activated? Yeah, like maybe I didn't word that properly because I'm not the academic. But if our bodies become activated, if we're in that heightened state of fight or flight, you know, it's mm-hmm. danger, danger, danger. Mm-hmm. If those lights are going off on the control panel, mm-hmm. we've lost the edge. We've lost the ability to think well. Yes. And, 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 and when that happens, we become, it's easy to get swept up in kind of a mob mentality, but it's very, very hard to actually to, to think well and, and to uh, judge well. So one of the theses of my book is that wisdom involves a certain kind of fair-mindedness or judiciousness. Um, right, it's in, it's kind of built into our notion of a wise judge, or you know, our par- our picture of a, a wise judge is somebody who suspends judgment. You know, he, hears the evidence, tries to exercise some degree of impartiality, even if nobody's one hundred percent objective, and that it matters when people try to exercise that kind of judicious judgment in so many spheres of modern life. That's just critical to thriving. Um, but when we when we jack ourselves into the internet and get inflamed by the by culture warriors, by the the sky is falling claims of of those who you know fear people on the other side of the political divide, um, you know it, it's hard to be our best selves. Yeah. Let's take a break, and when we come back, we will continue the conversation with Andy Norman. We're talking about mental immunity. To learn more about Andy Norman and Circe, please go to andynorman.org. You can find him on Twitter at Dr. Andy No, and on Facebook, Andy Norman Author. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back, and that is a real promise. Wait, wait, wait. Before we take that break, I want to remind everyone how joyful good hair days make us feel. These days, I'm prepping my hair for the cold days ahead with some extra TLC from Way Hair Care Products. The holidays are here, so why not give the gift of healthy hair to yourself and those special people on your list? Take the guesswork out of gift shopping and give something useful to your peeps. I'm a huge fan of Way's best-selling leave-in conditioner that helps manage frizz, tangles, flyaways, and breakage for all types of hair, 
and the hardworking Detox Shampoo that cleanses hair of product buildup, hard water deposits, dirt, oil, and other impurities. And best of all, it's safe for all hair types, including color-treated, keratin-treated, and Brazilian blowouts. In fact, this holiday season, I'm gifting the three-way kit to everyone on my list because let's face it, Three ways are better than one. This kit features travel-sized detox shampoo, leave-in conditioner, and wave spray to treat, hydrate, and style. This is a great way to introduce this awesome product line to people you care about. Trust me, I've been a happy customer for years. Way offers a complete line of products for all hair types that promote fuller looking, healthier feeling, and happier tresses from the outside in and from the inside out because good hair care demands more than just styling. All Way products are deliciously scented and promote healthy hair that looks and feels soft, shiny, and bouncy. Way offers everything you need to keep your lovely locks healthy, strong, and protected from the elements, high heat styling tools, and is color safe and cruelty free. Discover all the ways to share joy this holiday season. Go to T H E O U A I dot com and use code HH to get 15% off your entire purchase. That's 15% off your entire order at T H E O U A I dot com code HH. Now here comes the pause. We'll be right back. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit harvestinghappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. And we're back continuing the conversation about mental immunity for the passionately ignorant and willfully disinformed with my guest, Andy Dorman. Let's get back to the conversation. Andy, I want to talk about what's happening at Circe, which is the mm-hmm. Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative that you founded. It's a global mm-hmm. think tank, and mm-hmm. you've got some exciting things going on there. Yeah, well, thank you for asking. Yeah, so this backstory on this is that my book was received by, among others, scholars who really resonated to its call for a a new science of mental immunity. So in the same way that you can study the body's immune system and learn how to make it function better, we can study the mind's immune system and learn how to make it function better. So scholars from psychology, from internet information studies, philosophy, from public health even, were all coming together and saying, hey, we need to take a public health approach to preventing the worst kinds of cognitive contagion. And so we've actually, in just a few months, you know, raised a good portion of what we need to carry out a really exciting new project to promote what we're tentatively calling cognitive hygiene. Ooh, love this. Oh, do you? <laughs> I so do. I'd, I'd actually love your take on this. We're struggling with whether that's the right term for it. But here's the idea. In the same way that very simple hygienic practices help to protect us from many, many otherwise debilitating diseases. Um, it, It looks increasingly as though some relatively simple cognitive practices, certain habits of mind can protect us all or make us much more resilient and less susceptible to conspiracy thinking and propaganda and, um, you know, other, some of the worst mind bugs that are out there. So 
so tell me what, why you what, what what is it about that concept that, that struck a chord with you? Because personally, I had done research. I wanted to write something on social hygiene, but then I did the research, and social hygiene was originally the practice of eliminating venereal diseases in prostitution in in society. Okay. And I, and I thought, well, you know, what's another name for it? And I couldn't think of another name for it. And then. This is the name, cognitive oh. hygiene. <laughs> oh, okay, great. Because it was something I was interested in, you know, mm. but not as a researcher like you, as an academic, but just like to write about. Well, I'm with you that, you know, I, I, I'm a part of me as in one hat. I, I, I'm a scholar and a researcher, but I'm also, re I really care about communicating with people who are not experts and giving them conceptual tools they can use to better their own lives and to help the people they care about. And I actually think that we all do need to exercise a certain degree of caution in the way we consume and handle information if we want to stay mentally healthy. Um, and I think some of the basic tenets of those of healthy uh, cognitive practice are, are kind of like hygienic practices. Yeah. They're, they're ways of minimizing our risk of, of uh, false belief and, and harmful belief. I also like the inoculation part of this too, you know, mm -hmm. that we can have inoculants that prevent us from falling prey to untoward infections of the mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, absolutely. So this is one of the real, I think, untold stories of psychology that for about 60 years now, psychologists have been studying how you can inoculate minds um, against false narratives and mis- and disinformation and propaganda. Um, and a really interesting illustration of the power of mind inoculation is the way the Biden administration uh, preempted Vladimir Putin's preferred narrative on Ukraine. I don't know if you followed this, Lisa, but oh, yeah. <laughs> many, many of your listeners will probably um, know the basics of the story. Um, Putin wanted to tell the world a story about how Ukrainian aggression and Ukrainian Nazism required uh, his and Russia's military intervention. But because the U.S. intelligence um, agencies caught wind of this effort and started broadcasting basically warning, saying, hey, everybody, look out for a false narrative coming from Russia because it's coming and don't don't let it schnooker you. And because they did that so successfully, the world has overwhelmingly turned against Russia's war of aggression. And, and Putin lost that information battle decisively to Biden and, and the Biden administration. And I think that's a illustration of the power of mind inoculation. And the power of also the storytelling, right? The stories that we tell ourselves when we talk about psychology and the therapeutic use of storytelling to heal, right? That yes. it, it translates to this cognitive hygiene that you're working on. I, I think that's right. I think stories are have unusual power to mesmerize and and seduce us both for good and for ill. Yes. The best stories pull us in and tra and transport us and actually and elevate the way we think. But there are also, I think, and we need to be able to talk frankly about this, there are also bad stories out there, stories about Satan worshiping pedophiles in the <laughs> basement of pizza shops. Preposterous stories. 
Well, but some of them are are plausible enough to get taken seriously by many people. And if they have a germ of truth to them, often that helps them spread. Well, you know, it's like, I don't know, both of us are probably going to date ourselves by this next point. But I don't know if you remember when you were a young adult going to the market and at the checkout counter, all the sort of the rag newspapers, the National Enquirer and all Mm -hmm. of that stuff. And there was always a kernel, a little teeny thread, a droplet of truth in the story. Yes. And I think the purveyors of, in fact, I I believe there is now, I I don't remember where I read this, but, um, you know, the Russian disinformation agency that tries to spread divisive misinformation in America, they've discovered that if you can latch on to something that really happened and spin it in the right way, it will spread far faster and, and farther than if it's just made up whole cloth. Yeah. Um, because people will, will kind of click on a link and they say, oh, I did my research. Uh, if it goes back to the, to the, to the germ of the, of the story, even if the story twists it out of all proportion, that germ of truth can give it enough legitimacy so that it spreads. Yeah, I have a little incident of that with a relative of mine who shall remain nameless mm. where I was sending like some data And then they sent me back their data from their research. My data was from a think tank of great minds from all perspectives, sort of delivering the facts and the statistics. Mm -hmm. And their data was sending me back the Trump White House page. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's interesting. I, I wonder whether, I wonder how many Americans understand that to count as evidence, an information source really has to be reliable. Like objectively reliable. Objectively reliable. (laughs) Exactly. um, And statistics uh, matter, like science matters, which is which is the point of Circe. Yeah, that's right. And and unfortunately, we live in a time when the whole idea of objectivity has been under assault for decades. I went to college at a time when many people on the left worried that the concept of objectivity would just justify you know, the imposition of Western values or Western science on the rest of the world. And and that ethos um, created a suspicion of the whole concept of objectivity that has kind of eaten away at our shared reliance on 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 reality, our shared our shared obligation to to triangulate against reality. Does that make sense? Yes. But when we talk about obligation, I do think that we have an obligation as humans to co-create some form of a shared reality where everybody mm. is counted. Yeah, and it's interesting. Well, so take the idea that everybody matters is a wonderful example, I think, of an idea that you can't go out and collect empirical data for that. I mean, there, there's no, there's no um, observable evidence that everybody matters. And yet... I want to endorse that as just as enthusiastically at full full throatedly as I think you are. Um, and and so it's an interesting kind of claim. So philosophically, the idea that you know everybody is significant, everybody matters. Um, it's not it's not an observation. It's, it doesn't rest on observations. It rests on a conviction about how we thrive. Yeah. But or about the best way to thrive. And the belief or understanding that if you do well, 
and my neighbor does well, mm-hmm. then I do well. We all do well. Mm-hmm. And everybody becomes elevated. But it goes back to that fear thing, right? If you fear monger and separate the mm-hmm. us versus them, then it keeps people kind of dumbed down and in yes. a state of being like a sheep. Like Yeah. And so if you can convince folks that, you know, the world is one big zero-sum game where more for others means less for you, then you, it's easy to turn people against each other, right? Yes. Um, but so many of the most important areas of life, our well-being is aligned with that of others. And, and, and there are win-win options out there that, um, that, are, that are best for everyone unless we obscure them with fear-mongering and, and – uh, demagoguery which are weapons absolutely and i think information is being weaponized in our world in in really disturbing ways and the and the idea that uh speech rights and everyone being entitled to their opinion those those are ideas that i think are being used to protect the weapon is weaponized information and i'm not sure they were built to contain weaponized information we have to be really careful there and there's a difference in my view of being free to speak your mind and have your opinion and then weaponizing that speech. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like to say that, you know, yes, we have speech rights, but we also have speech responsibilities. Yes, yes, yes. And to emphasize the one to the exclusion of the other creates an an imbalance. It, it, make, it turns the information economy into kind of like the Wild West where you know, where people can yell fire in crowded theaters and, you know, or or uh, destroy one another's reputations online without any accountability. And that can't be the solution to a healthy information no. ecosystem. We are nearly out of time. And as always, our visits fly by. And I hope you'll come back and keep updating mm. us on what's going on at Circe and let us help spread the word because... Thank you, Lisa. Cognitive hygiene needs to be in everybody's housekeeping cabinet. <laughs> well, so uh, the experts we've assembled are going to be articulating the basic principles of cognitive hygiene so that everybody can enhance their immunity to the worst kinds of information contagion. And uh, look look for us to release our findings with, within within the, the calendar year. Yeah, well, we've got some, some elections coming up. We're going to need it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> to learn more about Andy Norman, please go to andynorman.org. And you can also learn more about Circe at cognitiveimmunology.net. You can find Andy over at Dr. Andy No, N-O, and on Facebook at Andy Norman author. As always, it is an extreme pleasure to share part of my my day with you and come back, hang out. The the pleasure was mine, Lisa, and I promise I will. All right. Here comes that pause. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back. We're talking about mental immunity for the passionately ignorant and willfully disinformed. My next guest is Professor Renata Seletzel, 
She is a philosopher and sociologist. She is professor at the School of Law, Burbeck College, University of London, and senior researcher at the Institute of Criminology at the School of Law, Ljubljana, Slovenia. Her books, which include On Anxiety, Tyranny of Choice, and A Passion for Ignorance, has been translated into 15 languages. Renata's 2014 TED Global Talk has garnered more than 1.6 million views. But we're talking about this passion for ignorance, what we choose not to know and why. Welcome, Professor. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you. Let's talk about these curious facts. Why is it that people do not have a passion for knowledge, but rather a passion for ignorance? It's the title of your book, but I want to know the, the science behind this, the research that backs this up. Yes, every epoch has its own ignorance. And of course, every epoch has also a vast, usually, increase of knowledge. But we are observing today a kind of a strange phenomenon that with the enormous amount of new information and knowledge that we have today because of our technological, scientific development, and of course, the internet, we are observing quite a lot of people kind of switching off, uh, stopping sometimes uh, even like following the news, but also living in their own little information bubbles. Now, what has changed in today's society is first the kind of the relationship to knowledge. We don't identify anymore with kind of traditional authorities, uh, even, you know, parents or, you know, community leaders or scientists. Nowadays, an influencer who has, you know, personal opinions uh, can have, in a way, more influence on the public than a scientist who has been for a long time working and was trying to sort of kind of come close to some questions of what is true, what are facts. So there is kind of an increase in doubt in today's society, which a lot of authoritarian leaders around the world are capitalizing on. When people don't trust anyone, you know, when they are constantly skeptical, you know, this is a kind of a very fertile ground for, you know, sort of new type of populist leaders. You probably remembered at the time of the pandemic, you know, there was this debate, is there a virus or not? You know, should we be vaccinated? Of course, already before, so-called merchants of doubt have been working hard to instill doubt into climate uh, sciences. And uh, we can see that societies thrive on some kind of a structural ignorance. Quite often corporations, when they do something badly, let's say cause an ecological catastrophe, will try to keep people in dark, you know, not reveal what actually happened. But on the individual level, we as people also have problems coming close to something that is traumatic for us. Let me just jump in and ask a question about merchants of doubt, because if we look at how the human brain operates and the the brain's predilection for a negativity bias, is that part of why we're so easily drawn into this? Is it because we're hardwired for the negativity, our mind goes to the negativity as a defense mechanism for preservation of life? 
To a point, yes, but I think that we should not forget the power of the ideology. In my previous book, uh, Tyranny of Choice, I was analyzing how the neoliberal idea of choice has actually contributed to the feeling of anxiety, inadequacy, the feeling of guilt, and I would say also contributed to kind of an idea that every individual can come to his or her own truth, which in some way we also saw now with the pandemic, you know, when people were thinking about how to uh, battle against pandemic, quite often individualism was very strongly present. People felt it is my individual right to choose whether I will be masking myself or not, or I will make an individual choice whether I am getting vaccinated or not. Here we saw that this kind of doubt was linked together with the individualism, which is strongly present in the Western societies. Which then leads me to think about the question, what about the greater good, right? The individual versus the greater good and how what I think I hear you saying is this the neoliberalism that you describe, that, that the individual can come to their own conclusion about what is their own truth, almost um, destroys the concept that we work as a society for the greater good. Exactly. And which is why we are not thinking enough about social choices. You know, we are still focusing on individual choices, but like pandemic is a social problem. You know, it's not simply an individual who can solve it. And when we talk about leaders and and the um, the rise of more uh, sort of uh, dictatorial style leadership, which that those leaders promise that we will have a society where the individual, you know, will rise and 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 yet it's doing the very opposite. Exactly. And that's the danger of today's society, because we are facing so many difficulties, you know, climate change, economical uh, uh, crisis, um, also, you know, big changes in societies. Uh, Technology has hugely in some way changed us. And here we are observing, you know, really, you know, an opening for this kind of populist leaders who are opening sort of like this identification that people will be able to fight for their individual, you know, rights. But also in some way, what we are observing is this kind of false idea of hope that a populist can, you know, kind of offer. And that's kind of what I'm afraid, Um, you know, also we can see in times of crisis, people are often even more closing their eyes in front of social science uh, or, or, you know, sort of like the question of what is truth and what isn't, um, because they can easily identify also with various gurus who are offering, you know, quick solutions. Let's talk a little bit about ignorance. And is it on the rise in today's society? Or is that we just see it more because everything is available in this 24-7 cycle on social media and the news? I think it is on the rise. And we often don't even observe it. Like, 
in in science we are saying that we are living in knowledge driven economies but if you look closely it would be better to say ignorance driven economy because you know economic development also scientific development relies to your access to data but you know data is often highly protected you know a lot of data is in the hands of let's say google amazon facebook they are not sharing with the public how they are you know sort of analyzing data algorithms are are hidden also you know if you don't have money for a copyright uh, you cannot sort of develop a certain product and in science also sometimes you know researchers cannot easily read uh, the new research if they don't have access money to subscribe to expensive scientific journals so even scientific research now is quite often limited and linked to economic means Yeah. I, I'm thinking about critical thinking as being actually one's own personal path to being a, an independent free thinker. Like we cannot control necessarily who's in leadership, but by questioning and being curious and, and, and using our minds to um, analyze what is being put in front of us, that is the beginning of change at the individual level, which then trickles to uh, a global level. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, this individualism is contributing to the the feeling of guilt that we are guilty if we do not succeed because we didn't make the right choices, the feeling of anxiety. And I think that those kind of emotions play a very important role in today's society. And in some way, they are helping the kind of the system in which we live to continue, you know, and they are kind of, in a way, blocking critical thinking. When I'm full of anxiety, and doubt and feeling of guilt that I'm individually doing something wrong. Well, while if you look a little bit more broadly, you see that unless you have economic means, unless you are living in a healthy environment, unless you know you're not endangered by climate change, you can't make this kind of, let's say, ideal choices about your life. And of course, choices are never ideal. Because the brain can't function properly. In some way, yes, of course. Right. If you're in that state of fight or flight or constantly just struggling for your daily existence, yeah. your mind cannot make those critical thoughts. And of course, and if you are constantly questioned, I'm not good enough, I'm not looking good enough when you're like observing other ideal images on Instagram, I think those feelings of doubt and guilt are, are something that is sort of like very hard to fight against because they're in strange way benefiting, you know, the kind of this ideology, which I'm sort of speaking about, a kind of ideology which relies on this tyranny of choice. And it's very much part of how the neoliberal economy functions. And validation of one's worth based upon external forces, I think, is also what you're saying. Yeah. That's what I'm analyzing in, in this book, a, a passion for ignorance, that a lot of times ignorance in regard to truth data is in a strange way linked to the feeling that we are ignored. You know, a lot of people feel that they are ignored uh, by society, by other people, like, you know, on the social media, liking and sharing is becoming a tax. We are paying for friendship. Yeah. It's and, a it's a currency. 
Exactly. I observed, <laughs> I, I observed a strange phenomenon that, you know, there are quite a lot of people who are sharing uh, fake news or, or conspiracy theories, and they do not actually believe in what they are sharing. Oh, gosh, we need to go to a break. But when we come back, we could, we could jump into that and spend hours talking about it. Let's take a pause, and then we'll come back and we'll continue the conversation with Professor Renata Seletzel to learn more about her and her book, A Passion for Ignorance, What We Choose Not to Know and Why. Please visit renataseletzel.com. And let me spell Seletzel because it's a bit unique. It's S-A-L-E-C-L. RenataSeletzel.com. Here comes the pause. We'll be right back. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. back talking with Dr. Renata Seletzel about mental immunity for the passionately ignorant and willfully disinformed. Let's return to the conversation. So Renata, before we continue the conversation, I would love for you to clarify what you had meant in the prior segment about neoliberalism, because words do matter and people often confuse words that we use in conversation. I think it's worth clarifying. Yes, uh, thank you. Yes, mostly I'm thinking about the ideology which is very present in today's uh, developed and also developing world related to the type of capitalism we are living in. And here I'm thinking about the system which is very much relying on the idea of individual making his or her own choice, also the individual having the chance to to succeed if the choice is made rationally in a proper way. So so that kind of a idea of just do it. Everyone can make it. You know, you are responsible for everything in in your life. And I think that this is the sort of the, the ideology which is very much I, I think creating the type of. Uh, psychological problems that I'm analyzing because we know that people are not making rational choices and that choices are limited with their economic standing. I agree with you completely, actually. That's why I was very uh, anxious to have you clarify the, the term because it's very hard to achieve our goals to just make it or just do it without social support and education. Absolutely. And we are losing, you know, I would say that, you know, a lot, you know, we are losing social support and also, you know, we are losing, you know, sort of kind of access uh, to good education if we don't have economic means. Which is the dumbing down 
of the average person, right? That only exactly. only a few get access to all of the resources necessary to succeed and the rest are in some way not worthy. And that is the st- kind of another structure system of ignorance which yes. operates in society, which prevents access actually to great information, let's say scientific knowledge or, you know, trademarks, copyrights. I think that's a very interesting point about the copyrights and trademarks, that if you don't have enough resources to go out there and file for copyright or trademark protection, then you can't actually be a player in the global stage, right? Yes, and we are also speaking that data, uh, big data is now the new oil. And so yes. if you don't access, have access to that or if you don't have knowledge about how algorithms are working, uh, then you are living in the dark. And a lot of us, you know, really do not understand what is collected about us, let's say, by the social media, uh, whenever we are visiting internet or whatever, you know, using our mobile phones, that is data, which is then, you know, used for a particular type of targeting where, you know, our desires, our kind of uh, drives start playing an important role. And I'm not thinking only about, you know, us being targeted as consumers, but also we know from Cambridge Analytica, political opinions. Yes, yes. Yes. Influenced. And how then elections become manipulated and how they're not free and they're not just. Exactly. In some way, we, we can say that political opinions, you know, very much rely on how emotions are manipulated. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I mean, the, the sort of the, the, the psychological tinkering that goes on with us as humans, right? If you look at the pandemic and the kind of fear that was instilled in, instilled in us from the knowns and the unknowns, you know? Yes, yes. And that's what I was trying to point out in the book when I was analyzing that feeling that people feel ignored. Uh, for example, incel men uh, or, you know, other uh, people too, they feel that they are not recognized. And that quite often contributes to how they deal with certain information or, you know, the questions of what is true and not. And here comes this, you know, very interesting uh, research about, you know, people passionately sharing sometimes uh, hateful uh, speech or conspiracy theories without actually believing in what they are sharing. But what they are gaining from from this, and this was uh, research done by Danish and American uh, researchers where they looked at 6,000 passionate Twitter users uh, and when they interviewed them, they saw that a lot of them did not believe in what they were sharing, but they gained two things. First is recognition from their own group, um, you know, likes and sharing of their posts. Um, and then also a certain recognition from the other side, let's say the opposite people who believed in the opposite sets of political ideas or in regard to virus, people who had different opinion about the pandemic, when this other camp responded, uh, often with anger, then people who were spreading, uh, you know, hate speech or conspiracy theories also got recognition. And I think it, it taps into a very primal need as humans that we like to be seen, heard, and understood because it makes us feel that we belong. Exactly. And sometimes some provoking someone's anger uh, can bring that recognition too, you know, through the pain. 
yeah or or a sort of angry response that we that we get from another you know and there's been a lot of research done on mostly young men who have been part of gangs you know street yes. gangs and what they say about that sense of connection and belonging because they are part of this gang and even though they might be doing illegal behavior that they're gaining something from this Yes, and often when you are part of a gang, your anxiety is also sort of less present when you're engaged in kind of transgressing the laws. I want to um, circle back to the new type of knowledge that you alluded to. You mentioned big data. The yeah. other two are genetics and neuroscience, and I would love for you to sort of elaborate on that. Yeah, today we have, you know, kind of a fantasy often that, you know, if we will know about our brains more or if we know about our genes, we will be able to sort of kind of tackle um, illness in a better way. But also we we have kind of a question whether, you know, if when science develops further and is maybe able to tell us whether we are a carrier of a particular type of, uh, you know, gene or, you know, that if we're genetically predisposed in general for particular illness, do we really want to know? Yeah. <laughs> and quite often, you know, people are totally divided. Some people literally do not want to know. So this is a kind of an ignorance which they willfully embrace because it's too painful for them to live with a knowledge that some illness might erupt in the future, you know, science, of course, often is pointing out that there is far less certainty in this prediction. You know, there are few illnesses which are related to a single gene, but, you know, many illnesses might emerge because of a certain kind of, let's say, interplay between various genes and, of course, the environment yeah. to plays an important role. So I can fully understand that some people don't really want to know if the medicine will be able to offer some kind of, let's say, uh, predictions. A similar thing with kind of embracing illness, uh, uh, sorry, embracing ignorance, we can also observe in our love lives. You know, there, you know <laughs> ignorance is bliss often, at least when we are in the stage of the romantic. Right, the love lights are on. <laughs> Yes, not knowing too much about, you know, your potential partner, you know, can keep these romantic feelings alive, you know, so which is why, you know, closing your eyes and, you know, not trying to research too much about the partner might for some people be be quite helpful, you know, to keep the, at least the fantasy and the kind of the excitement alive. But it's impossible, really, right? I mean, ultimately... The love lights do dim. We do have moments when they, you know, the candle burns a little bit brighter for our partners, particularly if we've been together for a long time. I see the correlation. And what is the antidote? I mean, what is the big challenge for us to, to feed the fire of curiosity? How do we bolster or arm ourselves to go out in the world and deal with our own ignorance and the ignorance of others? Yeah, I'm trying not to be totally negative about ignorance. So I am critical, of course, about the structural types of ignorance, um, which I was talking before about. But on the individual level, I think we should respect a certain 
power that ignorance can have in, in terms of sometimes allowing us to live, like say, when we are dealing with some trauma, sometimes it is really too painful for us to come to that knowledge about yeah. something that was so traumatic, which we want to erase out of our heads. And when we are learning about a certain illness, let's say at least some people are, you know, closing their eyes. They they just don't want to hear. Or some are even, you know, creating kind of disease-free weekends. Just for the weekend, they want to pretend that maybe everything is normal. Although they rationally know that, for example, they are very ill or their partner is very ill. So I'm sort of respecting the individual's sort of need that occasionally you know, the individual somehow needs to close the eyes and, and in a way protect um, his or her well-being. But of course, quite often, um, you know, this doesn't last long. Uh, we come close to something that is traumatic and often we do need to find a way to deal with it. But I would like more for us to kind of understand the mechanisms, the social mechanisms, the social media and uh, the big data, for example, so that we are more and more conscious in regards to, you know, how we might be living in the dark and uh, how we can become actually more critical about the ideology, sort of, which is convincing us that everything is in our hands while it, in reality often it isn't. Or even if we think that we are making, you know, rational choices quite often in an unconscious way, you know, we might be acting against our own well-being or we might be heavily influenced by others, what others are choosing or what society perceives as, you know, some kind of, a, let's say, uh, acceptable choice. And when we talk about choice and choosing wisely, I think that when I look at the situation here in the U.S. and in my circle, right, the people that I come in contact with, the discussion is all, always circles back to the things that we can control, which are our attitudes and our actions. And, you know, that's very important, I think, to strengthen, <laughs> which is why sometimes we disconnect from, let's say, something that is uh, very painful for us yeah. or might, might actually not be good for our well-being. Professor Renata Seletzel, thank you for joining me today. We were talking about her latest book, A Passion for Ignorance, What We Choose Not to Know and Why to Learn More. Please visit RenataSeletzel.com and let me spell Renata's last name. It's S-A-L-E-C-L, RenataSeletzel.com. Come back anytime. <laughs> I, I could spend the day with you talking about all Thank of this. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress Kamen on behalf of my guests, professors Andy Norman and Renata Seletzel, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember happiness is an inside job, happiness is your inside job. Please go out and rock your day and remember to be kind to one another. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. 
To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUURadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.